You're listening to Cinema Rex. It's an Iranian film podcast. Episode 12, Samira Mahmadabov's Blackboard. Hello. How are you, Farhan Jun? I'm good. How are you? you <laughs> I'm doing well. You celebrated a monumental occasion recently. Yep. My 20th birthday. Congratulations. I feel good about that. Happy Thank birthday, you. Kaveh. Thanks for celebrating with me. Of course. Durur Bashomo Dustana Aziz. Welcome to the Cinerex podcast. I'm Kaveh Mohebi. And I'm Kaveh Mohebi. And we are two Kaveh Mohebis on a mission to teach Farhan Muradi about what? About what? His name. My real name is Farhan Muradi. I'm still <laughs> learning this, though. And about Iranian cinema and films and television and media and, and plumbing and uh, dramatic arts and theater and craftsmanship. Taxes. Axes and juggling. I said taxes. Oh, taxes, of course. Taxes and axes. <laughs> taxes and axes. I have something really exciting to share with you. Go ahead. So for Christmas, my wonderful partner in crime and wife, Mayam. I thought I was your partner in crime. <laughs> You're my partner in crime. She's my partner in crime and wife. Okay, okay, I got you. She got me all four volumes of this book. A Social History of Iranian Cinema. Oh, wow. By Hamid Nafisi. Nice. And... I've gone, I've retroactively gone through some of the little tidbits from the films we've done in the past just to see if there was anything I could pull. Mm. Man, are these books filled with little wonderful tidbits that I'm going to be using from now on for our episodes because nice. this was stuff I could not find on the internet. Nice. And really helpful. So one of them I wanted to do retroactively is drop a massive knowledge bomb on you on Kimiai's The Deer. Hit me. Specifically referencing a question that we both discussed. And I think it's fine that we didn't know the answer. These, this information is hard to come by, but it's good to have, you know, our own interpretation, which we very much went on. And then literally from the horse's mouth, from the deer's mouth himself, an explanation as to why the title of the film is called The Deer. Okay. Do you remember what we'd said? You'd given an estimation that I thought was very good. I think I had said because they're these like peaceful, regal creatures that are often hunted. Yeah. And I like that. And I still think, you know, there's, it's art, so you, everyone's up to that. I, I, I thought it was a very nice interpretation. I'm going to read from this directly. Kimiai is the Deer was screened at the Tehran International Film Festival, in whose official publication Kimiai explained the meaning of the film's enigmatic title. He remembers as a schoolchild his teacher telling the class that deer have ugly legs but beautiful horns, and that what saves them in a tight spot is their speed, thanks to their ugly, scrawny legs. While that which snares them is their long, pretty horns. The reverse is true of the film's main characters. Two close friends with a vast potential for societal good fall victim to vice, one to heroin addiction, the other to robbery. What keeps them in the end from giving in totally to corruption is the innate innocence of impurity, as well as their childhood friendship. Now, I don't know why that second half, I don't quite understand how that analogy is one for one, but I do think this idea of like, the ugly scrawny legs being salvation and the beautiful horns being the thing that can ensnare you yeah, is actually somewhat quite um, apt to what these characters are going through. I thought it was a beautiful explanation and it was directly in response. It's Kimiai's response to why it's called the deer. That's really cool. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. So like moving forward, I'm going to always find some time to like look up the chapters. This is, this is like four volumes, each at about 600 pages. So we have about 2,400 pages of notes to go through. Yeah. But it's been very helpful. So I'm going to just also thank my partner in crime and wife, Miriam, for this book. Nice. And if people have other book recommendations that they think is valuable, I've got another one called Close Up. It's That's a reference to the uh, Kira Slami film. 
that I'm reading through as well. It's called The Past, Present, and Future of Iranian Cinema. But yeah, if people have like book recommendations that are just full of really interesting facts, please let us know. In the interest of retroactively adding a couple little tidbits, I'm going to add one for the title of the first podcast that we did. Yes. The first film. Uh, Where's the Friend's House? Mm -hmm. So while obviously it's a line that's spoken in the film by the, the mother of the main character, a few people had messaged me and they were like, and, and it's funny because the people who had messaged me were, were non-Iranians who were cinephiles who were like, oh, it's a reference to this poem, which has a line in the, in the poem about uh, where's the friend's house. But then a few other Iranians that I spoke with who are all much older, who are like 50s, 60s, 70s, were like, no, no, it's like, it's a saying. It's, it's a thing. It's, it's like a proverb. Mm-hmm. of when you when you talk about something that's so sweet or it makes you feel at home or it makes you feel welcome that is the friend's house and so sometimes there's like a call and response it's like where's the friend's house it's that cozy winter day when you come in and it's warm and whatever like it's mm-hmm. it, it's a saying yeah yeah so yeah i just thought that was worth mentioning so please stop messaging Farhan <laughs> with explanations as to the- no it's okay because because the message is are kind of what let me on finding this out. Yeah, you know what we should do? Every episode, maybe we start with giving a couple tidbits about a couple of our episodes. Because I have a few more, but we can save them for later. Sure. Correction corner. <laughs> yeah, correction corner. Today, Paran, we are looking at the film Blackboards, also known as... I think it's called Takhte... Takhte Hai or something? Takhte Sia? Takhte Sia. Takhte Sia, yeah. By Samira Mahmal Buff. You know, when I was a child, uh, from the very first years, I, I loved to be a, a director because of loving my father, because uh, I find that uh, he loves cinema, and I go through it to see what is cinema, and I find it as lovely as my father was. And um, I, I, I love making film more than being an actress. I think cinema can be the same as a mirror in front of a culture. Show it to itself and tell it what is wrong with you. Maybe at first they don't find, I mean, culture and people doesn't want to look at it. And they tell, okay, I, I prefer continue my own way. But if you, I mean, express on your idea uh, and keep mirror in front of them, at first, at least, it can show them to themselves, to can change something. A prolific filmmaker in her own right, but she's also, one of the things she's famous for is being the daughter of Mohsen Nahmadbaf, who is also a famous legendary director. Uh, one thing I really kind of want to try to avoid from doing, and I don't know how you feel about this, is not talking too much about her father, because I want to speak about her as a director in her own sort of right and being in journey. There are some things that I think are interesting as behind the scenes and backstory about it. Mm-hmm. But what I would hopefully like to avoid is like making this like the Mahma, uh, Mohsen Mahma sure. yeah, yeah. Uh, podcast. I mean, it's it's important to note he, Mohsen is a co-writer on this film. Yeah, yes. And I mean, yeah, those things, I just kind of feel like we'll, we'll get to a point where we're going to do his films anyways. Yeah. But what, the other thing I'm really excited about is this is our second female Iranian director we've done on the podcast. The first being Mazia Burumand, who was the co-director of City of Mice. Mm. But again, I was trying to like, you know, for a long time, I've had a really hard time. I've spoke, spoken to a lot of my friends and family who are women filmmakers uh, or like that one is a, is, she's a critic. And I was kind of asking, like, it's really hard to parse out the Iranian filmmakers from yesteryear 
mm-hmm. course, there's a lot up and coming now. But I was reading the um, that book that I mentioned, and I just wanted to tell you some stuff about Iranian filmmakers. If you want to hear them, there's some like interesting facts about women filmmakers in Iran. Mm, hit me. Prior to the 1979 revolution, only three women were ever credited with directing feature movies. Uh, Shahra Riyahi, 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 or Marjan in 1965, Marwa Nabili for The Sealed Soil in 1976, and a director named Cobra Saidi, who was also known as Shahrzad. She was a cabaret singer and dancer. Mm. She directed a film called Mariam and Mani in 1979. Oh, these are for feature films. Feature films, yeah. Okay, okay. But that only three sense. credited female directors. You could also include Furuk Farukhzad, but she her film was a documentary. And it was, and a, it was a short short, film. Doc, yeah, short yeah. documentary. But during the late 80s, female directors grew more numerous. The ninth Fajr International Film Festival in 1990 officially recognized their prominence by devoting a program to the cinema of female filmmakers. Feature directors were most visible as the festival showcased films by Puran Derakhshande, Rasshan, Banitimat, shoot, I'm going to like butcher this. Feryal Behzad, Tahmine Milani, and even Marzi Burman, City of Mice. Tahmine from Prince of Persia? Uh, yeah, Tamina. <laughs> yeah, so this, in 1990, the ninth Fadj Festival did like a showcase of Iranian female filmmakers, and they had included City of Mice on that panel because of how prolific that film is. Mm. But it's somewhat ironic because, you know, post-revolution, all of a sudden the world of cinema opened up to women in Iran, like Iranian filmmakers. But compared to the men, their numbers remained few. For one example, the official statistics that the Islamic regime public news agency released for 1988 listed one woman as having directed a feature movie that year, one woman as a screenwriter, two as film editors, and one as dubbing director, and so on and so forth for smaller roles. Apparently, no female director of photography had worked on a film that year. So that's just like one example, like mm. out of one night, like the year 1988, those were the stats. Mm. By 1999, the same analysis of statistics showed that less than 6% of all directors were women. And that only six of the 120 producers were women. Women consisted 23% of all actors, 24% of set designers, and 10% of script writers. Mm. So that's mo- it's relatively modern. That's like as of the year 2000. I wonder if percentage-wise, it's actually similar to what it was before the revolution. Because You mean like you think even less now? No, or like the same. Just because I guess if you were to like average it out over the decade. Because before the revolution, there was also much fewer directors working in general Mm -hmm. because it was still a pretty new art form in Iran, Mm -hmm. relatively Mm -hmm. speaking, right? So when you consider like, oh, three were women and how many directors were there overall making movies in Iran? I don't know. But that's from a timeline of like 1900 till 1979 though. Yeah. That's like the entire history of Iranian cinema before 1979. Let's say, for example, three women out of 100 directors then and then since the revolution there's probably been another hundred just by the nature of how the film industry works right like that there's access to more equipment things become cheaper Mm -hmm. i wonder i don't actually know well it's fine it's a discussion i don't know either but i just think it's interesting because i think we've both had this discussion but i've been particularly like having anxiety about trying to find a good balance I was worried about getting to like 20 episodes and it being 20 consecutive male directors Mm -hmm. And I'm thankful that we've so far found ways to incorporate films that have female directors, but mm-hmm. it's tough. Like it's genuinely tough because I don't want to have too many repeats either, mm-hmm. but you look at the history of a hundred years of Iranian cinema mm-hmm. and it's like, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a difficult. It's a difficult thing to parse out. Can I, can I try my hand at, at 
summarizing this? Yes. I think the film industry, like a lot of industries, has been largely dominated by men for so long in Iran and in many countries. And Iran is obviously a fairly patriarchal society, especially after the revolution. So I think we need to keep that context in mind when we're talking about, well, how many female directors are working in Iran versus how many male directors are working in Iran. And have worked. And, and have, have worked, worked and have worked in the past. Yeah. So for us, I think we're we're going to do our best efforts to try to have as many female directors sh- uh, showcased on the podcast as possible. Mm-hmm. And we thankfully have come up with a pretty solid list. A big issue why we haven't done as many yet is actually because so many of those movies are such seminal parts of cinema. And we're actually working on getting specific guest hosts or interviews paired with those episodes that that's why those those ones are harder for us to just bang out on a whim yeah so those episodes are coming for our listeners those episodes are coming and some of them are about films that were made in iran some are about iranian filmmakers in the diaspora those episodes are coming and it's not to say that it's clearly easier to find iranian filmmakers women iranian filmmakers in the modern era, you could easily say like Shada was directed by Nura Niyasari. Mm-hmm. A Girl Walks Alone at Night is mm-hmm. Anna Liliamanpour. Mm-hmm. Persepolis is Madron Satrapi. But those are all pretty modern films mm-hmm. compared mm-hmm. to the long history of Iranian cinema. And I think a big part of what we wanted to do was like dig deep into like some of the classic films that were the foundation of filmmaking today in Iran. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at films from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, mm-hmm. And then the stat tells you that of in about an 80 year history of Iranian films, there was three credited female directors. Mm-hmm. It's tough. Mm-hmm. It makes it really difficult. It's also interesting that a lot of these movies that we've reviewed on the podcast so far only feature one or two women in the movies. Yeah. Like it, it, it's almost a reflection of the world that a lot of these directors live in, right? Because a lot of times, like if you're a filmmaker, a lot of your friends are filmmakers right? Yeah. Or they're producers or they're actors, whatever the case is. And if you're talking about an industry that's largely dominated by men, it would it would come to reason that your films will reflect that reality. So even the film that we're talking about today, there's only one female character in the entire film, even though it's directed by a woman. And there's about 50, 60 people in the film, maybe? Would you say like Probably more. more. Like there's tons of characters in this movie and there's only a single woman. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Her whole like character is that she's a mom. Like that's yeah, that's what it it boils down to. So I think that that's also a reflection of the reality that some of these filmmakers are living in or were living in, especially like 25 years ago. But thankfully, it does seem like it's changing. I don't know how much it's changing within Iran, but yeah, it's definitely changing. With that, should I just dive into plot summary? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Plot summary for Samira Mahmoudov's Blackboards. Wayfaring Kurdish teachers carrying blackboards on their backs look for students in the hills and villages of Kurdistan, near the Iraqi-Iranian border during the Iran-Iraq War. Said falls in with a group of old men looking for their bombed-out village. He offers to guide them and takes as his wife, Halale, the clan's lone woman, a widow with a young son. Ribar attaches himself to a dozen preteen boys weighed down by contraband they carry across the border. Said and Rebar try to teach as their potential students keep walking. Danger is close. Armed soldiers patrol the skies, the roads, and the border. Is there a role for a teacher? Is there hope? It has a 74% Rotten Tomato score and a 76% audience score. Farhan, 
beginning with you, what did you think of Blackboards? Mm, I liked it for the most part. I thought some of the editing was kind of weird. <clears throat> but that that stood out to me just because I come from a background of editing. I, like weird how? What do you mean? When it cut between angles, like between the sides, mm -hmm. sometimes there'd be like weird pauses. It almost felt like it would cut to the other angle and the actor was like waiting for their cue to say their line. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it And it happened a lot. So like you'd be watching a conversation and then someone would say something and it would cut to the other side and there'd be a pause and then they would jump in. And be like, no, 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 hold on, hold on. And it's like, that guy hasn't said anything for like three seconds. What do you mean? Hold on, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And there was a lot of repetition in the dialogue. And I think, again, I don't think that was, it felt natural. Like it wasn't a natural repetition thing. Mm -hmm. It felt more like the line was said once on the other person's angle. And then it was said again when we cut back to the other side, the same line. Yeah. So it, it actually felt unnatural to me and it took me out of the movie yeah okay the general premise of the film i loved and i loved how innovative they were with the use of the blackboard yeah there's certain plot lines that aren't neatly tied up and i actually really like that because it feels more realistic yeah for example at the beginning of the movie there's a group of teachers right it's i don't know if there's like five six seven teachers and they're all walking together all of them have a blackboard strapped to their back mm -hmm. they kind of look like turtles almost <laughs> so they're like walking through the mountain and you hear helicopters passing over by the first time and they run for cover after that, when the sound leaves, they kind of get out from by the mountains and they start smearing clay on the backs of the chalkboards so that it'll help them camouflage better as they're walking. And then they get to a fork in the road and the majority of the group decide to go one way, but two of them say, actually, I think it's way safer if we go this way. Can I just stop you there for context too? It's good to know that we are in yeah. the midst of the Iran-Iraq war. Yes. So we know that we're in the 80s. Yes. And that's the clue that it gives you. The helicopters. Yeah. Right away, they're speaking Kurdish, right? Yeah. They're in the mountains. They reference the border and then you hear the helicopters and they run. Yes. So right away, it's like by these clues, they're telling the audience, hey, this is the Iran-Iraq war which I thought was brilliant. I thought that that was a really good way to show the audience when this is, as opposed to like a title card or whatever. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but for the uninitiated, Kurdistan is like, it's not a sovereign nation, but it's made of a group of citizens that the Kurdistan, there's Iran Kurdistan and Iraq Kurdistan, correct? Yeah. There's Kurdistan villages that are sort of on both sides of the border. Yeah. So that you could be Kurdish and living in Iraq and Kurdish and living in Iran. But yeah, so essentially they are, um, they are not a sovereign nation, but they are a, a people who live in villages that exist in both those two countries. Yeah. And so the fact that these two countries are warring with each other is incredibly inconvenient for the people who live on two sides of the border. Yeah. I just thought that narratively it was a clever way to quickly convey to the audience where we are and when we are mm -hmm. and so when the group splits up i think four or five of them go one way yeah and then the other two go the other way we follow the two we don't follow the five we don't follow the bigger group yeah my thinking was the movie was going to cut back and forth between the large group and the small group yeah but that's not what happens because then this group of two also splits up and we just follow each of them. So we're only yeah. following Said and Rebar. Yeah. But we we're don't follow the, the bigger group. I and mean, you never find out what happens to that other group. They never mention it. Yeah. There's never a line of dialogue that's like, oh, 
that other place is been ransacked or is depleted or oh that's where everyone is safely like they never mention it and i actually really like that yeah there was also a lot of really sweet moments throughout the film Mm -hmm. given that it's it's a backdrop of displacement and refugees and war you would think that it might be super depressing from beginning to end but there are moments that are actually kind of funny and some of the circumstances are are really interesting and so to give you an example of a couple of those moments, one of the two men joins a group of children. Dubois. And then the other one, Said, he joins a group of adults. Old men, actually old men specifically. Mostly old men, yeah. Yeah. They're like, for the most part, they're like generally old men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there's a deliberate contrast there of like young kids and yeah. people towards the I think, later stages of them. I think the inference is that the middle-aged men are likely fighting. Yeah, exactly. Which is why they're not there. Yeah. There's a there's a scene where Said is like, hey, do you guys want to learn? And they're like, no, leave us alone. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, come on. Like, I'll do it. I don't even need a lot of money. Just give me food. They're like, we don't have food. They're like, well, do you have bread? They're like, no, we don't have bread. Tell you what, I'll, I'll help you get to the border if you give me some food. They're like, fine, we'll give you 40 walnuts. He's like, 40? That's not enough. I need 50. And it's like, bro, 10 walnuts are really going to make a difference to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to how... Uh, there's a note I made for myself. I'll just bring it in now. Is this the poorest people we've seen in film yet so far? Of of our entire CRP podcast. I think these are some of the poorest people we've seen in terms of... Like, these are poorer than... You compare this to Where's the Friend's House? Mm. And those people are obviously relatively poor to us. Mm-hmm. But compared to these guys, they have homes. Mm-hmm. They have... A marketplace they have mm-hmm. clothes on their back they have mm-hmm. a backyard you know they have a water they're watering flower like these people mm-hmm. have literally nothing mm-hmm. they have the thing on their backs whatever they're carrying and that's it. and that's the true for the kids too mm-hmm. what did you think like do you like can you what can you like give an example of anyone else in the, like of main characters that are poorer than this uh dastan from prince of persia all he has is Actually, the blunt thing <laughs> Ali has is his smug charm and his Jake Gyllenhaal beauty and his Persian uh, prideful walk. Yeah, one thing no, I, I think to you're add, right. I think you're right. The other thing was, as you're mentioning, like I really found it funny how when the when Reboard before he meets up with the boys, he's kind of going to the small village area. And he's kind of like calling out education as if he's a guy selling apples. Yeah. So instead of being like, apples, fresh apples, he's like, multiplication table. Who <laughs> wants to learn their multiplication table? Two times two is two four. And it kind of reminds me of like, you know, in those Western films when a criminal enters town and then all of a sudden everyone's like, <gasps> and they're running into their yeah, houses yeah, and yeah. they're like shutting the yeah. windows. It's like yeah. this, this wholesome teacher coming in town and he's like, who wants to learn? And they're all running inside and shutting the windows. Yeah, yeah. Chewing their children inside. But it's just funny because all they have is their in, their only commodity to share to society is the, I have this ability to teach you and educate you. And think of how, looking at it from outside, how valuable that is. Mm-hmm. But these people are so focused on the brink of survival for today. Mm-hmm. That the prospect of learning like how to spell your name isn't that important to them today. Because they're like... How am I going to transfer this thing I'm smuggling for like enough walnuts to have a meal or, you know, it's just like speaks yeah, to their yeah. level of destitute. Yeah. Well, especially <laughs> to, when the, at the beginning, the uh, when they're all when, when it's the big group of teachers all traveling yeah. at the very beginning of the movie, they're all traveling and they're like, oh, what's your plan? And one of them says, oh, we didn't have a doctor in our town. We had to keep going mm-hmm. to the town next door. So I'm going to find a student and yeah. teach him to become a doctor. 
so that we have a doctor in our town. It's like, this is the way that they're thinking about things that he thinks, oh, I'm going to come into this town and trade this child so that one day he can become a doctor. And this child is like, dude, I can't think of like 25 years from now. There's a war going on. I need to do what I can to survive right now. Oh, and the funny little tidbit that they find out later that all these kids actually already yeah, know. All how of them or some of them. Because the one kid does, like, Rebar, there's, he meets a kid that has the same name as him. And he teaches him how to spell his name. Yeah. He was the only right, one most I think of them that does do. I know the kid said most Yeah, because the other kid said, no, we right, all, yes, we all know right. how to read. Yeah. And then he's like, what? Like, why did why did you tell me? Yeah. And then he's like, well, because all of our yeah, moms exactly. told us not to trust strangers. Which is the value. Like, that's the level of things they need to educate each other on. It's just like immediate danger awareness right i yeah, found the film yeah. oddly poetic like the things that fascinated me most were the elements that this felt more like a documentary even though it isn't mm-hmm, it, there was mm-hmm. such a documentary feel to this even for iranian cinematic standards mm-hmm. and part of it was because i didn't think they did very good character development mm-hmm. from a lot of the characters and i think the thing that pushes this from being an interesting valuable good film in my eyes but not a great film mm-hmm. is that stuff of like the writing which i will put on mohsen mahmabov not samira mohsen mahmabov the writer is that everything about the setup and the world and this journey is so fascinating but the writing it, it almost felt like there was an experimentation to it there was uh let these characters be because also aside from the um woman played by behnaz jafai she's literally the only actor Everyone else is an extra from that village. They're all Kurdish. Mm. The, other act, the other actor who plays Rebar is Bahman Gobadi, who's actually in a Kurdish director himself. He's an Iranian Kurdish director, but he's not an actor. The only professionally trained actor is the woman in the film. Mm. So there is a lot of like, this is us documenting real people on a journey. Maybe the journey isn't real, but the, the, no one's acting. You know what I mean? In that same mm-hmm, Kiarostami mm-hmm, style. Mm-hmm. They let the language of the cinema kind of speak for itself. There's stuff like the opening shot, you, you know, mentioned they're all carrying the blackboards. And that's really interesting way into the world. And then they hear the mm-hmm. helicopter overhead and the way they do the turtle thing of like ducking under. They're, they're using the blackboards on their back as like protection mm-hmm. a shield from like whatever bombing might happen it's their shelter yeah they all huddle together so the blackboard forms like a rooftop over all of them mm-hmm. and i like that at the same time i was like is that a bit on the nose in terms of symbolism like the education that they're carrying on the backs is the thing that protects them mm-hmm. well, well, or am i reading let's, that let's dive into we'll, a we'll deeper analysis we'll yeah because yeah. i i have some stuff i want to talk about with the blackboard. but i overall did like the film I would not push this into like loved it territory. Yeah. But I think it's like a very, and again, this is one of those films I find, I got to be careful about who I recommend it to. I can't recommend this to a lot of casual film goers. You have to be yeah. invested in watching something that almost feels like, I almost rather recommend this film as a documentary to people. Yeah. And I Does think, that make sense? I think one of the reasons why it feels so much like a documentary is because of the way it's edited. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of times in documentaries, the pacing and the editing feels kind of weird and disjointed because you're doing the best you can in post. You're kind of recreating everything in post, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you're actually quite limited with what you can do. In this case, I bet you, you like, what's the running time of this? It's an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. About that. I bet you I could cut this down to an hour mm-hmm. and I think you'd watch it and be like, I don't know what's missing, but mm-hmm. it, it feels better. 
And I think a big part of that is just because some of the editing feels a little clunky. I also wanted to mention that I think the reveal at the end could have been done in a much more impactful way. Which specific reveal is that? When they when they finally reach the town that they're trying to get to. Yeah. And there's just mustard gas everywhere and yeah, yeah. and cyanide and stuff. I think that that could have been done in a much more impactful way. Mm-hmm. So have you seen the movie The Dirties? No, but the Canadian film, right? Yeah. I haven't seen it. So the whole movie touches on these kids who are getting bullied at school. Yeah. They're kind of neurodivergent, the kids, off in their own little world, and they're planning for something, and you don't exactly know what's going on. And then at the end of the movie, you realize that it's a school shooting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the movie ends with this school shooting. Yeah. When that happens, when you're watching the movie, that's what really makes that movie so impactful is the way that that's handled and the way that that it's done because the whole movie it's like oh this is their life this is what's going on all this stuff and then all of a sudden it hits you with this traumatic event Mm -hmm. it's not super gruesome or anything but it, it rides that line of showing you hey this is a massacre without doing it distastefully and i think because it does it so well the movie has a lasting effect on you. And when those credits roll on that film, you feel horrified. But horrified in the way that you want to feel horrified. And I think that with this movie, I think there was a way to potentially lean into it a little bit more, still without making it gratuitous and still treating it with reverence, but in a way where maybe the the film might have been a little more impactful. Okay, I have a question for you, though. Mm-hmm. Was the thing that happened in the end the massacre though or was the massacre not the thing that they referenced earlier because the woman references i don't want to go back like i'm scared about going to the border they think that the, they think they're being bombed or something she references the massacre that happened in the town mm. and i didn't know if that was a past event or if that's an upcoming event i assumed it was a past event i suspect it's a past event as well but i think that it's it's one of those things where they get there and they're still it's still there. It's still happening. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think it was it was a case of like, oh, we're just going to drop these chemical weapons and leave. So it's possible right. that this could be the, the remnants of it and the, the latter half of it. Do you know what I mean? Because okay. as, as they're getting closer and closer, you, you can hear it. Even though the one character is like, it's not chemical weapons. It's not chemical weapons. Don't worry. Don't worry. You hear it hissing and you hear it spreading and you hear it dropping. Okay, yeah. And it and it gets cloudier and cloudier and it's not it's not fog. I thought it was fog. I think in reality it's fog, like in the shooting, but I think it's supposed to be the chemical weapons. Okay, interesting. See, okay. that's why I mean like I feel like they should have leaned into it a little bit more. Like imagine that scene where, where they're all crawling up the mountain mm-hmm. and they're coughing and they're in pain and they're crying. Yeah. If all of a sudden yeah. they start just passing out right there on the mountain. Yeah, yeah. Because, again, it's a thing of, like, when he says we're at the borders and they don't trust them, mm-hmm. there's a whole element of, like, are they telling the truth? Like, I didn't know whether or not to believe him either. I believe them. Interesting. Because I think for me, that whole exchange of this isn't our homeland, you lied to us, mm-hmm. right? I think that that hits so much harder if it is their home and it's been destroyed because now it's not your home anymore in some ways, right? Because then the conversation becomes, well, what what is your home? Is your home not a place where you're safe? Right? Mm-hmm. Is your home the, the rolling hills, the mountains, the beautiful sky, all this stuff? And so when you take away the sky, you, the mountains have been flattened. The air is no longer pure. 
you're no longer safe here. It's not your home yeah. anymore. Yeah. So although they're they're speaking in a literal sense of they they think that he he's bamboozled them and taken them somewhere. I think to me, it's more of a symbolic thing of this isn't our home anymore. Our home's been destroyed. Yeah. Because eventually they're like, oh, wait, no, he's right. And then they cross the border and they start kissing the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think also to me, it would have been more impactful if as they're crawling up the, the, the peak and they start coughing, if a few of them started passing out and then they get to the top. The ones who are like surviving and like barely able to talk through the coughing are like, you lied to us. This isn't our home. This isn't. If the movie just kind of ended there, I actually, I think it would have hit me a lot harder. And usually I actually like when there's a little bit more of a denouement. But on this movie, I think it would have hit so much harder if they hit that peak and they're like, this isn't our home. You lied to us. And the movie ends. When he, when one of them meets uh, the old man earlier on, I think it's Said. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he asks if there's a teacher in town. The guy, the old man who's shoveling sand. Remember, he's just shoveling sand. You can't even see his face. Yeah, 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 yeah. He asks him to read a letter for him. He's like, you're a teacher? He goes, yes. He goes, read this letter for me. He says to him, he can't read Arabic at first. He's like, I can't read this. It's in Arabic. Mm-hmm. But then like the guy's like, you can't read it for me. And he starts fiddling with the paper. And then he quote unquote reads the letter and says, it's your son. He sends his hellos to mm-hmm. brother and sister and all that stuff. And he's like, is he out of jail? And he's like, oh, no, he's not. I was wondering if there's an element like, did you suspect he's making it up? I think he is a little bit. I think he's doing his best to try to make sense of, of this letter that's probably made up of like, arabic and kurdish like interchangeably mm-hmm. and he's like trying to figure it out but he's also trying to like get out of this conversation now with this old man but also not yeah. make this old man worry that's what makes you think that maybe he's lying at the peak yeah it's just like is he you know is is that is his main goal right now to make sure he can lead them to i, I don't know it's just it was like if he was being dishonest at that moment then it could be a little tip off that he's not being entirely honest either because Said is the one who also marries the woman mm-hmm. and he won't he like I, I, of the two leads he's sort of like the less you know I'll help you but what will I get out of it whereas yeah. I know they're both looking for but the other the other guy who is this he's uh, like offered Rubar. food and he says no no you keep it yeah and the kid insists yeah you're right I but so I don't well, know because I, th- I it's think up for interpretation I don't think it is because 10 seconds after they have that argument they all realize that it is their home and they start kissing the ground. I think it's hard for them to recognize it in the moment because there is so much smoke and gas everywhere. Mm. And at first, I like you, I was like, oh, wait, is he lying? Is he telling the truth? I thought about the symbolism behind that exchange, which made me realize, oh, maybe this is more of a commentary on how your home can be destroyed. Yeah. Right. And what is your home? And then 10 seconds later, when they pass through the gas, and they recognize their home, they start kissing the earth and they continue to walk through the border and then he turns mm-hmm. back. And you even like see the borderline, like you see the the barbed wire. So for me, I think it's it becomes clear, which which is more weight to why I think the movie should have ended a little bit earlier because I think it's actually a little more interesting for this movie to have an open ending. Mm-hmm. Because then you can have this conversation of, did he lie? Did he tell the truth? All this stuff. See, sometimes, sometimes I like open endings and I prefer them. This is a case where I would have preferred the open ending. Yes, you're very unsure of yourself and who you are as a taste maker. <laughs> what did you think of the marriage scene? I thought it was one of the most interesting marriage scenes caught in film. It, it's unlike anything else I've ever seen in a film. It's just like, do you want to, because, you know, Said joins the group and then it's like, oh, she's a widow or she's got a kid. And he's like, I'll marry her. 
I don't know why he decides he's going to marry her, but it's like as flimsy of a marriage proposal and wedding as whatever. And then yeah. the, 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 the group elder sort of puts the blackboard between them so they can't look at each other. And she's like, do you agree to marry him? And he's like, huh? <laughs> you know, the woman's kind of just saying, they're like, I don't. Okay. And he's like, okay, do you want to marry her? Yes. All right. You're both. What, what will you give us? Dowry? And he's like, my blackboard. Yeah. And she's like, all right. And there's like the marriage ceremony is over and they're like, you're officially married. And they just go back there. Like, it's just and, such a like. And she, there's, there's a play on words too, where, so mm. ha works as both yes and as what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So a bunch of times she uses it to mean one, but the guy interprets mm. it as the other. And she realizes this. So she starts to flip it on him. Mm-hmm. And so she's like, you want me to marry the blackboard? And like she like flips it back on him, and then she's like, "Okay, I'll marry the blackboard." Like yeah, all this stuff. Yeah. So then, throughout the movie, she she calls him blackboard. Yeah, she calls him blackboard. It's the title she gives him. Yeah, which says because she's clearly not like in love with him. She's not into the marriage at all. She only sees him as like his occupation. You're the teacher. Yeah, like as a means of making money, but he can't even really do that. So it's just like, and there's essentially a, an attempt at consummating the marriage too, right? When he goes into their hut and sort of like kicks the kid out for a second. I think I think he presents it as if it's a it's an attempt to consummate the marriage. Yeah, to the villagers so that they'll like leave him alone. But then he's just teaching. But his whole play is to just try to teach her. Yeah, and I think the reason he does it, like he doesn't. He's not even interested in marrying her until he finds out that she's the daughter of the like leader of the group. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So I think he clocks the fact that nobody wants to learn from me, but maybe if I can teach the leader of the group, right? Right. Yeah, then I okay, can get everybody sense. else to follow along, which is why he immediate was immediately was like, I'll marry her. Mm-hmm. And then when he goes to quote unquote consummate the marriage, it's when it cuts back, it's oh no, he's just teaching her. And throughout the trip, he just keeps yeah. trying to teach her things. And then finally, when he goes to abandon her, he's like, fine, you don't want to learn? I'm going to leave then. And then she goes and she hits him with that banger of a line. I like this idea that these characters in their country's time of need during wartime, their attempt at saving their countries through education. Yeah. That is what they have to offer their people. Yeah. And they're like, we are, it's like, they're not soldiers. They're not fighters. They're not warriors. Mm -hmm. They're teachers. Mm -hmm. And they're like, our country is in need. And what our country needs more than anything is educated people. Mm -hmm. So they, they're soldiering up to go do this mission, which is to save people through teaching. I especially love that you have these, these Kurdish men who are likely from some Kurdish village Mm -hmm. who went into the city, got their education, became teachers and decided to go back to Kurdish villages and find people to teach. Because they're like, this yeah. is your way out. This is your way to yeah. do more than just this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, my mom was a teacher in Iran. She went and she studied. She became a teacher. Then she went and started teaching in little villages in Mazandaran. She should watch this. Have you seen this? I don't think she has. Probably like it. Probably. I know she like wears the friend's house. And where's the friend's house? The, the teacher in that movie is likely from a city as well, just based on his accent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like, like you said, it feels like their own crusade, their own, their own journey, their own mission to be like, okay, we're now that we've done this as a group, let's all go and and find these villages and teach these kids. Because a lot of people who would leave the villages and who would go and learn to become teachers in the cities, they opted to just continue to work in cities. Mm -hmm. My mom was telling me that when her and her friend were like, no, we're going to go teach in in the small villages, all their classmates were like, why? Why would you do that? 
that's so weird right yeah yeah you know what i mean mm-hmm. i i also think in some ways it it you know sometimes when you have like a do you remember as a kid you would get a substitute teacher come in and sometimes the class would test that teacher. Yeah, yeah, of course. To be like, okay, what can we get away with with this teacher, right? And I think that there's a little bit of trial by fire that's, that teachers need to go through when they're dealing with a new group. Yeah, of course. The test of character for Said is where he's going through trying to negotiate for Walnut, trying to marry the daughter of the leader of the of the village. And then for the other teacher, his test is really a test of patience with these kids. Who are just constantly busting his chops and like yeah, yeah. pushing his buttons, right? Yeah. And I love that he keeps flip-flopping between being like, oh, my dear student, hello, young man, all this stuff. And then he switches to, God damn it, why are you guys listening? Like, he like loses it. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, bro, if you're going to lose your temper this quickly, good luck as a teacher. There's a recurring motif of the need to piss throughout this story. And it was these moments and like even the divorce scene or the wedding scene where I'm like, I'm pretty sure Samir and Mahmoud Buff's intentionally trying to be very funny. Mm. But I couldn't tell the deeper analysis. You remember the, there's the old man who cannot piss. Mm-hmm. He can't urinate. He's got mm. like a blocked whatever, mm. prostate or urethra, whatever. Then there's a the little boy that like the, the she has to take him out to try. There's like this constant recurring need of like the need to piss and urinate. And I'm like, this is deliberately trying to be funny. But they keep bringing it back. Do you think there's anything to that? Did you have any take on that at all? Because I don't have a take on it. I just <laughs> made a note of it. The only thing I could think of, like I like kind of noted it, but not really, was just that the need to go to the washroom and having a hard time doing it, I think was just a way to tie in the fact that whether she's taking care of this child or taking care of her father, yeah. it's the same issue. Right. I think it's just a way of tying in the elderly and the children in that they are dependents. There's a few times, though, when the two men, like two or three men also help the old man take a piss in the corner. He's like, you can let it go. Just let it out. Let it out. Just pee. And like they're holding him up near the water. It takes a village to help him piss. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Like, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I didn't see any symbolism on neither the did I, representing I just life or this or that but what what i did see was more the two she has two men in her life right one is her son and one is her father yeah and both of them struggle with the same thing i think it's more of a a, a representation of the fact that she has to provide for both of them yeah I mean, it could have, you could have done a lot of things, though. It could have been they both refuse to eat walnuts or they both want to drink water or they both. Sure, sure. You can ask Samir Makhmanbaf. Also, if people listening to this think Kava is reading into P way too much, feel free to hit him up. Smash that P button. <laughs> Behind the scenes in trivia. Just want to do a quick little background on Samir Makhmanbaf because I think it's very interesting. So this is really behind the behind the scenes. Samir Makhmanbaf was born in... February 15th, 1980. It's almost actually her birthday. She's the daughter of prolific Iranian director Mohsen Mahmadbaf. He's the writer and director of famous Iranian films The Cyclist, Kandahar, Habib. But this is not about him. <laughs> not quite. Samira acted in many of her father's movies from her childhood on. In fact, the Mahmadbaf Film House, established in 1996, constitutes of a family production house and film school in which the entire family, his second wife, Marzia Meshkini, Hannah, who was then eight years old, and Samira then 17, were taught filmmaking and made their own movies. They worked on each other's films at various capacities and eventually distributed the resulting works. 
according to the Mahmoud Buff uh, Film House, according to its website, Mahmoud Buff began the film school to teach Samira, who dropped out of high school to learn to make films from her father. Considering Iranian universities were inadequate, he conceived a plan to open a formal film school and hold a nationwide entrance examination to accept 100 students. When the Ministry of Education denied his application, he opened a small homeschool in his house with his eight family members and friends. During the time, many film exercises were conducted and several professional films were made and released, which made a name for the directors. Mohsen directed Silence, Meshkini directed The Day I Became a Woman, Samir directed The Apple at 17 years old, and Blackboard at 20. This film was made in this, in this family film school. Maysam, who's uh, um, Mohsen's son, directed a documentary about the making of this film called How Samir Made the Blackboard, which is impossible to find. I searched up and down for this documentary. Could not find it. And Hana made the short video The Day My Aunt Was Ill. The MFH, Mahmabaf Film House, acted as a film school, a film production house, and as a film distributor. So Samir essentially like dropped out of high school at 14 years old and studied under her father how to make films. And Blackboard was the second film she made in, in this like family, eight members only film school. It's funny she, how she dropped out of school and then in this movie it's like, well, yeah, it's important that you go to school. <laughs> Well, I think there's actually something I'd read. This is sort of a response to also her teachers, I think. Whether or not she disagreed with their attempted practices, or maybe she had a problem. Again, don't forget, she grew up in the Islamic education system, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe this is a little bit of like a sticking her thumb at those teachers who were teaching under Islamic rule, right? Mm -hmm. The Maysam, her brother's documentary, How Samir Made the Blackboard, contains home videos and film footage of his sister's career demonstrating how Samir developed from a child actor in her father's movies to a 17-year-old director. Who's, who's older between Maysam and Samir? I think Maysam May older, is older. I have to double-check that. Famous Iranian-Kurdish director Bahman Qobadi played one of the teachers, Vribar. And actress Behnaz Jafari played the one woman in the village. But the rest were non-actors. They were Kurdish locals. Bahman Qobadi. We've talked about him in a previous podcast episode. Which one? I don't remember, but we talked about reviewing one of his films. Bahman Qobadi, who played Ribar in his, his own right as a Kurdish-Iranian filmmaker, who spent his career pushing the boundaries for Kurdish existence in Iranian film, declaring openly his passion for Kurdish people's subjects and histories. He has been assistant to Kiristami on The Wind Will Carry Us, which was uh, partly filmed in Iranian Kurdistan. Actually, we're doing back-to-back -back films that take place in Kurdish villages, eh? Yeah, 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 yeah you're right, you're right. His own film... Bobadi's own film about Kurds is the celebrated feature, A Time for Drunken Horses. Farhan, you have some behind the scenes and trivia stuff regarding some of the context of the film? Yeah. After the fall of the Ottomans at the end of World War I, a series of wars were waged between the Iraqi government and Kurdish peoples, which resulted in the death of hundreds of thousands of people. The use of excessive force by the Iraqi Central Authority against the Kurdish population and the massacre of tens of thousands of Kurdish civilians through bombings, artillery, and the use of chemical weapons. In addition to these casualties, millions of Kurds were displaced and turned refugees. Already a people with a history of displacement at the hands of a Persian majority in Iran, the Arab conquest, and the Ottoman Empire, the Kurdish people have faced a millennium of oppression. Following the Iranian Revolution, Kurds in Iran have also faced violence at the hands of the IRGC and the Iranian army. During the Iran-Iraq War, Kurdish groups PUK and KDP rebelled against Saddam Hussein 
to establish an independent Kurdish state. This was from 1983 through 1988, culminating in the Halabja massacre, where the Iraqi forces used chemical weapons, including mustard gas, against their own civilian population. It is estimated up to 5,000 people were killed and over 10,000 were injured. The Halabja massacre was later concluded to be a genocidal massacre against Kurdish people under Saddam Hussein. It is estimated up to 5,000 people were killed and over 10,000 were injured. The Halabja attack was later concluded to be a genocidal massacre against Kurdish people under Saddam Hussein by the Supreme Iraqi Criminal Tribunal, and the attack has been condemned by governments around the world. The town had been subjected to a five-hour attack involving conventional and chemical weapons. Iraqi aircraft dropped chemical bombs on residential areas, causing widespread devastation. Eyewitnesses described seeing colored smoke and experienced terrifying symptoms such as vomiting and loss of consciousness. Survivors reported various forms of death, including sudden collapse, laughter followed by death, and slow agonizing deaths from burning and blistering. The attack resulted in numerous casualties and injuries, with victims showing symptoms consistent with cyanide poisoning and exposure to mustard gas and nerve agents. Despite previous smaller-scale chemical attacks, the international community failed to respond effectively. Survivors, aided by Kurdish fighters and Iranians, hurriedly buried most of the dead in makeshift mass graves. After retaking the land, Iraq sent troops to study the effects of their weapons and attacks, after which the town, still littered with bodies, was systematically razed by Iraqi forces. So the town was essentially flattened. The Japanese government funded a $70 million project to provide safe drinking water in response to the devastation. Assistance in the development of chemical weapons came from the United States under Reagan's administration, West Germany, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, and France, with raw materials also coming from Australia, Italy, and East Germany. So that being said, I don't think it's a surprise that so much of the world turned a blind eye to what was happening. I think it's also worth mentioning that the Iranian government likely used these Kurdish militia forces against Iraq. I don't think they actually cared about establishing an independent Kurdish state. Otherwise, they would have done it in Iran as well. They were 100% just using whatever they could to hit Saddam from as many angles as possible. Yeah, And I think that that also is likely why so much of the fighting happened along the Kurdish portions of the border is because neither the Iranian government nor the Iraqi government actually cared about the Kurdish people. Yeah. Which is unfortunate given the fact that Kurds have such a long history in Iran. And then you have the Iranian government not caring and using them as pawns. So in the context of the film, you have one group of elder statesmen or elder villagers who have left their Iraqi side of the border to flee the bombing, right? To flee the poisonous gas. Mm -hmm. And now this in the film, they're trying to return back because they think it's now safe passage. Correct. Mm -hmm. Is that Mm -hmm. the context? And then for the kids, they mention at one point, they're like, the, the teacher says, what are you guys doing? He goes, we're mules, meaning they're just drug mm-hmm. mules. They're, they're, um, they're, they're bringing over contraband across the border. Is it drugs? Do we know that it's drugs? I guess it could have been. I mean, from the stuff that I had read when I was doing research, it, everyone referenced it, referenced it to the fact that they were like, it was contraband one way or another. They're smuggling the stuff across the border. Yeah. It's not being like shipped legally under the authority of right. shipping Right, but my body. question is, my question is, is it 
contraband in the sense that these are supplies going to Kurdish people. Mm. And yeah, the Iraqi government doesn't want that to happen. So it could even be medication. It could be weapons. You're right. It yeah, could yeah, be you're food. Right. Like, we don't know what it is. You're right. It's contraband, blanket statement. Yeah. And it technically doesn't really matter. It's just the fa- fact that these kids are, have been tasked with this. Is the only thing they can do to provide yeah. some sort of financial means, right? Yeah. But yeah, dark stuff. And this is the context in which Samir was like, this is the story in the world I want to tell. Which is, I don't know, some of the most moving things about it. Critical reactions. It won the jury prize at the Cannes Film Festival in 2000, and it was a nominee for the Palme d'Or. Why didn't it win? You have to ask the jury. You think it's Palme d'Or worthy of winner? Or is it fine to be just a nominee? I guess it's fine to be just a nominee. I don't know what else was nominated that year. (laughs) In her speech for the um, jury prize... She said, this prize is to honor the heroic efforts of all the younger generations who are struggling for democracy and a better life in Iran. Wow. Was she allowed back in Iran after this? I would assume so. This might have been during the reformist movement in Iran, though, where the government was yes, like yeah, yeah, pretending right. yes, to like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. It was the 2000 Grand Jury Prize winner, also at the American Film Institute Festival, AFI Fest. Mm. Critic Jonathan Rosenbaum of the Chicago Reader, who we've brought up before. He really likes Iranian cinema. He's an avid Kiristami fan. He'd love this podcast, actually. We should send it to him. In general, he spoke highly of the film, adding, When I first saw Blackboards three years ago, I was surprised as well as puzzled that in some way it reminded me of John Ford's 1950s Western Wagon Master. I've not, so have you it seen that? Him. No, but it reminded him of a Western. That's interesting. This film. And the last little bit I have for critical reactions, I definitely want to hear your thoughts on this. Critics of Mohsen Mahmalbaf and his family, especially the critics coming from those in political exiles, have with some justification pointed to political connections as the reason for the success of the Mahmalbaf film house and its members. Referring to Samira's Khan entry in 2003, the exiled film critic Basir Nasibi cynically states, and quote, Without benefiting from such government connections, it would have been impossible for such a young girl, even if endowed with talent and high capability, to achieve 1% of her status and success. Iranian cinema is dynastic. Morusi is the word, I guess, in Farsi. Morusi? I don't know. I don't know the word. I see that in brackets. Iranian cinema is dynastic, and the lucrative situations are divided amongst the favorites. End quote. How do you feel about that thought? I mean... Like I've never worked in the in the film industry in Iran, but from the the Iranian filmmakers that I've spoken to who have worked in Iran, that sounds pretty consistent. But the irony there is the people that I've spoken with are also people who've made movies in Iran. So a lot of what I hear is people being like, oh, yeah, the only way that you can get movies made in Iran is if you're in with those guys, like yeah, in with the government. Sure. But but then they'll follow up being like, except for my movie. So it's like, well, then clearly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. clearly there's exceptions to the rule where there's people who are trying to make things yeah, and they, and they're brushing up against the censorship. And sometimes people make things secretly like Panay, like Panay. Yeah. It's funny because it's like with Nasibi, this guy, this film critic, Basir Nasibi, it seems like a little bit of sour grapes because he's an exiled film critic. But at the same time, you could argue he's not wrong. Samir is a very talented director in her own right, but how could you deny that to some degree nepotism plays a part of it? Yeah. And to another degree, 
if Mohsen Akhmabov wasn't as famous as he was, maybe Samir might not be getting a lot of the passes that she's getting around that time with that government specifically. So it's like, uh, you know, yes, sour grapes on SCB, but maybe there, he has a point. I, yeah. I feel like there's a bit of jealousy amongst those exiled film critics too, because they're like, you know, these people are like dedicating their lives to an art and have to have fled their home country. So yeah. Contextually also, this was a time period where the Iranian government was pretending to be open to the idea of some progression yeah before cracking down like immediately after again that's also a potential factor here is that it's possible that the government was more lenient with her because of the climate but i i have no idea and i think the reality is that we'll we'll never know about some of this stuff even if the regime changes in iran like i think a lot of filmmakers who were tight with the government are going to turn around and be like no i was never tight with the government you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it, these are things that we can only suspect. I know we've provided mixed feelings on uh, Farhadi. Farhadi has mm -hmm. also been accused of being tight with the government, but he's also yeah. someone who has criticized the government. He just does it like way later than everybody else. Like once the ship yeah. has already sailed, yeah. everyone, like all the other working filmmakers in Iran have criticized then he does it yeah so some people look at that to be like oh clearly he's in with the government but then lately he like recently he just came out and he said that he's not going to make any more movies in iran until the hijab restrictions are are removed i mean it's yeah. it's tough to say when when these filmmakers are associated with the government and when they're not i think for us it's important to look at the themes that they're trying to push with these films and the impact that it'll actually have on Iranians and on our culture internationally and judge the film based on that as opposed to just blanketly being like, oh, this person is in bed with or is not in bed with the Iranian government. Well said. Well said, Far. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and that's all I have for critical reactions. Okay, let's move on to deeper analysis. Hava, what have you got? The children are smugglers. The old men are returning to their homeland after the Harabche gas attack. Returning to die, because I mean, they're all older too. I feel like they want to return to their homeland. And these teachers have blackboards strapped on their back, which, what does it resemble? Long black wings. You said turtles. It also could be like your shield. But it's also like, they all kind of look like birds or angels. I don't know whether it's like you want angels to- Angels like, of a death, maybe? Angels of death or-, or Angels coming for salvation. Is it education? I mean, we set also you free? see the crows multiple times throughout yeah. the film. Will education set you free? They negotiate themselves every step of the way. Their presence is felt. So I don't know. It's just the little bit, maybe perhaps they'll notice, but this idea of like the, the blackboard on their backs looking like long black wings. Mm -hmm. Angels or crows, mm. the blackboards on their back being shielding them from war, the thing that will save you. It kind of mm -hmm. came back to a lot of the same symbolism behind. The power, strength, levity of education. Mm -hmm. What about you? Yeah, uh, basically the same. And I, I like that the representation of the blackboard changed multiple times throughout the film. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's used as a tool for learning and a tool for education, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's the first introduction we get to the blackboard is that's what it is. That's who these people are. That's what they're doing. Yeah. He literally is called blackboard by his wife, too. Like, he is the blackboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first it's represented as this tool for education. Then it's used as shelter when they use it to take shelter from the passing helicopters. Then it's used as camouflage when they paint it 
with the clay yeah so that while they're walking it'll be hard for them to be seen and then it's used as a stretcher Mm -hmm. it's used as a means to help someone who's sick yeah they flip it upside down and they put the old man who can't piss the old man yeah akava's favorite character on the stretcher and they carry him and then it's used as a wall for privacy yeah right it's more intimate it's a stand-in for intimacy Later, it's used as a drying rack. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. And then it's cut up and used as a splint for a leg. Mm-hmm. And then finally, at the end of the film, it's used as cover from the bullet fire. Yeah. It, he uses it specifically to protect his wife and child. The <laughs> yeah. metaphorical stand-ins <laughs> for his family. Up. And one thing I wondered was, like, would it even protect them? Is the protection merely symbolic? Yeah. So I, I think that the that blackboard... And the title is kind of a reflection of of many things throughout the film about shelter, camouflage, and survival, and blending in, hiding. The stretcher and the splint kind of stand in for for health. So is it maybe like even digging deeper, is that then saying the um, shape-shifting quality of education of how it's a multi-tool? It's like a Swiss army knife? I think so. Education can become everything. Honestly, I think so. I think that that's the point. I think that the point is that education can be a shelter education can be used to camouflage you when you need it it can be used to provide health and wellness and medicine Hmm. yeah it can be used as a tool for to carry you to carry you it can be used for intimacy and for then to express love he's literally teaching her the word love on it yeah once he's establish the blackboard as a as a tool for privacy right yeah how sweet is that moment when she finally they get their divorce through essentially a ceremony that is exactly like their wedding and she because a part of the dowry was to give the blackboard she ends up walking with the blackboard but the last thing you see as she walks away is he's written on the blackboard i I love love you you. yeah so it's the final message as she's walking away to him it's like without her even saying it it's like that's a very beautiful image i think it's one of those big standouts I also really like this idea of in this short journey between Said and this woman, Halale, we see the poetic lifespan of our meet cute. Man meets woman, marries her. They raise a kid together. They live in a house. They have a house together. They go through hardships and dysfunction and then ultimately divorce. <laughs> Technically, all those beats are there. Remember, they even have a fight so about the like kid. like one day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All one day. But like you literally see like when she when the kid runs away. Remember at one point and they, they have like a lover's like a that's how parents argue that's how a husband and wife argue like they have a lover's spat mm-hmm. it's very funny it's just like this like small like lifespan of a man meets woman falls in love gets married is encapsulated mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. which i thought was very funny yeah this is great this i feel like we had very similar stuff for deeper analysis what's your favorite scene best scene ultimately i would have to say the best scene is is halale walking away with the blackboard i just think like the culmination mm. The culmination of their entire marriage and everything you saw and him trying to teach her to write, I love you. And she's Mm -hmm. ignoring it. And even though she never learned to write it, it's still sort of like the final message she's left with that she's walking away from him. I thought it was a beautiful image and scene. So I'd give that best scene for me. It sounds to me like you couldn't think of a best scene. So at the end of the movie, you're like, ah, I guess this last shot is the best scene. Yeah, it's probably true. (laughs) (laughs) There's no, I don't know. Did you have a best scene? I have, I have two runner ups and I have a best scene. In third place, it is the scene where they're crawling through the mustard gas. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's not my favorite is... I Also known as fog. Also known as fog. Yeah. I, I just think that it could have been done a little better. It could have been more impactful, a little more clear. 
it was just a missed opportunity, so it falls to third place. Second place scene for me is when the townspeople think that the teacher and Halale are consummating their marriage, they try to distract the kid with this game where they're flicking walnuts back and forth yeah. and trying to like knock walnuts off each other's hands. Yeah. And everyone's getting so into it. There's a crowd of people that have huddled around these two older men and this child and they're flicking walnuts. I thought it was really cute. But my number one scene was when Ribuar and the boys, they're walking and then all of a sudden the scout, one of the boys goes, they're coming, they're coming, they're shooting. And then the boys all start running for cover and and the teacher's running with them. And as they're running, the teacher starts going, Ar like Ribuar, Ar like Ribuar. And then the kid starts repeating it, Ar like Ribuar, yeah, Ar like Ribuar. And, yeah. and then they're like running up the mountain and the teacher goes, Rrr, and then the kid goes, Rrr, and they just yeah, keep, yeah. he keeps getting him to practice his letters while they're running. running, running and like all lives. the other kids are like running for their lives, like, oh my God. They're yeah. like running up the mountain and he's still just giving this kid his lesson while they're running up. I just, I, that was my favorite scene. I have a new favorite scene. I thought about it. I hadn't written it down. I just remembered now. Sure. I do want to say the, the marriage ceremony is my favorite scene. Mm. Because the idea of like, this is a marriage ceremony you've never seen in any film before. It's the poorest of poor. It's over within 45 seconds. They're divided between a blackboard. It's so unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and such a charming little scene of... It's just like, here we go. These two are married. They met like literally a minute ago, but yeah. this is the way society works. It's just, it's interesting. Also, context for the listeners. Essentially what happens is this teacher is tagging along with this group and he's like, does anyone have water? Does anyone have food? Can someone give me something? And then this woman shows up with her child and gives water to this old man. And then she walks away and then he's like, can I have water? Can I have water? And she ignores him. Then he goes up to somebody else in the group and he's like how come i can't have water and they're like oh you can't talk to her she's the daughter of the elder in the village yeah and he's like well who is she yeah he's like, you can't talk to her unless you marry her and he's like well can i marry her and he's like you want to marry her and then he's like yeah and he's like okay well we need to get consent from from the dad which is the old man which they i guess assume consent from the dad from him because he's like old and flailing around yeah and then we have to go ask her he's like so let's quickly go ask her if you want to marry her so then they go over to her and she's squatted down and helping her kid who's crying yeah and then as he goes up to her the man's like no no you can't look at her yet unless you get married so then he puts up the blackboard yeah, as yeah. a as a barrier and he goes Hey, you want to marry this woman? And he's like, yep. He's like, will you protect her? And he's like, yep. And then he asks the woman, he's like, hey, do you want to marry this guy? And she's like, what? It's like the guy with the blackboard. Do I want to marry the blackboard? It's like the guy. She's like, (laughs) you want me to marry the blackboard? Sure. And then he's like, okay, so you want to marry the guy with the blackboard? She's like, yeah, the blackboard? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) It's love, man. That's, That's what love's all about. They've literally never spoken she doesn't even know what's happening. She's like tying <laughs> her kid's yeah, shoe. Yeah. And all of a sudden they're like, hey, you want to marry this guy? I yeah. now pronounce you husband and wife. Yeah. By the way, Rebar dies in the end, right? He got shot. I don't know. I was thinking about that. I don't think we know what happens to Rebar. You just see a bullet fire and then like the blackboard falls under and his hand is underneath. But you don't see much more. But I don't even know if that's his hand. We see the yeah, blackboard I couldn't tell. Fall. I looked at it. I looked at it. I couldn't tell. I think the implication is that he gets killed and all the kids get killed. Yeah. You see the kids getting sniped one by one. One of them does. One or two, I thought. A couple. 
I think one does, but yeah. And see, like, that's another thing to me that even that could have been slightly more clear. I don't need it to be gratuitous. It's just Mm -hmm. slightly more clear. And I think it actually would have hit so much harder if it was. Yeah. Least favorite scene. Uh, Mine was just, I I had a hard time choosing, but I think that when he's debating for payment for leading to the the border, not when he's talking about the wellness, that's kind of a charming scene. Mm. But I felt like not knowing who this character is yet. And he's seen a group of older men who are clearly like steadfast on a mission. And now he's sort of banded with them and following them and now negotiating. I was like, God, you're so annoying already. Like this guy. And then he, that whole scene, I was just like, where am I supposed to? I, that was like my least favorite scene just because I didn't, he annoyed me in that scene. It was quite mm. early on in the film and he hadn't endeared me yet to him. So mm. that's what I would give my least favorite scene. Mm. You? For me, it was the first real conversation between Said and Halale. Mm-hmm. Just because there was so much repetition there, and that was one of the scenes where the editing really felt clunky to me. Oh, okay. When, where was that? Where was that? Was it in the house? I can't remember. Uh, damn, that's poetry. I have a feeling we have the same one, but maybe we don't. Why don't you give me yours first? Should I give you my, um, my runner-up first? Yeah. My runner-up is an exchange between Ribuar and one of the kids mm-hmm. when he goes, wait, you can read? And he says, yes. And he responds... You told me you couldn't. And he said, I just don't trust strangers. Yeah. My mother told me not to. And what about the other boys? They can too. Their mothers told them not to trust strangers either. So what is? Balayas. So what is? Balay. We gave you a lot of money. We gave you a lot of money. What? We gave you a lot of money. What did yeah, it's a great scene. But my number one is after Saeed keeps trying to get Halale to talk to him. After Halale has gone and chased down her son who chased after a bunny. And she just doesn't respond to him the whole time. He keeps trying to get her to engage in this math lesson and she won't do it. She's not interested. He tries to get her to learn how to read and write and learn to say, I love you. And she won't do it. He's like, okay, well at least tell me you don't love me. And she won't say anything. So he gets up and he's like, fine, then I'm leaving. And he just leaves. And she chases him down. She's like, wait, wait, blackboard, wait, wait. And then, so he turns around and he looks at her and then she comes over to him and she stops and stares and goes, my heart is like a train that never stops at every station. Someone gets on and someone gets off. But there is someone who always remains. And she leans in close and she goes, my son. And then she grabs her stuff off the blackboard and walks away. Yeah, it's a great moment. Yeah. That was mine. <laughs> nice. Favorite performance. I, just, I like Batman Kobadi a lot. Who played Rebar? Between the two male leads, he was my favorite yeah. character. I thought he was, he was like he was like a little bit more charming and fun, and I liked his interplay with the kids a lot. And so, yeah, it would give me it gave me very much. I liked his performance a lot too, and it just you can kind of tell if the other actor is a non actor, and Bahman Kobadi is not an actor but he's a director. I felt like there was something about his knowledge in and around a film set that kind of really lifted his performance. Mm. Yeah, I agree, and I think. 
when he was trying to be sweet and gentle, he did it really well. And when he lost mm-hmm. his temper, that was also done really well. Mm-hmm. So I would give it to him as well. But also the, the child with the same name, mm-hmm. he was also very good. What did you think? Like, I guess neither of us really liked, it wasn't our favorite role for the, uh, the woman, right? Halala? Like we didn't really, she, just, again, she was so like not a character for a lot of it. There wasn't much to her. As an actor, I thought she was great with what she was given. She did a great job. Yeah. I was actually a little disappointed because I felt like, especially because a lot of Kurdish women in those situations are actually militant. Yeah. That I was a little surprised that she wasn't. I thought for sure they were going to be like, oh, she's the protector of the group. Yeah. But they didn't do that. So I was a little disappointed. Yeah. That would have been cool. Yeah. Nitpicks, hot takes, what aged poorly? That. Yeah, that the characters, the character specifically, Halale being underwritten, I thought like is, I mean, again, it's all up for interpretation, but is the idea of like Blackboard being subtext for education and the Blackboard being the shield, and like, is that a little bit on the nose? Uh, I don't fine. think so. I think it's fine. I think it works. My My other nitpick, I guess, would be some of the editing. Yeah, I'd say like in a weird way for a feature film that is a narrative film, the structure is a little bit flimsy. The pacing is a little bit documentary style, which with documentaries, you're quite often working with what you have. You're filming what you mm-hmm. can. But this is like, a, the, everything's narrative. You, you were in control of everything with the pacing. That's it. That's a nitpick. Nothing really there. You don't have that nitpick with a lot of Kurosami films, though. You, give, you tend to give them a pass. I think maybe their characters are more compelling. All like mm-hmm. a lot more well-rounded, compelling characters. So I'm invested mm-hmm. in them, even if they're doing less. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Like, I can't even, like, outside Halala, who I don't think has much of a character arc, I don't know, I can't distinguish any of the other men who were with the, on this journey, the Kurdish men, the older mm-hmm. men, the elders, mm-hmm. like, who were, like, who were they? They were just an amorphous blob of men, right? Right. No, no character stood out. Right. Double feature lineup. I said the wind will carry us because it's the landscape of Kurdish villagers, and I know it's literally the last film we both watched recently, but I kept... Thinking about it, you could do like a Kurdish village double lineup. Or if you want to do Kurdish cinema night, a double feature lineup, you could do uh, Bahman Qobadi's A Time for Drunken Horses. He's a Kurdish filmmaker. The logline is young Iranian Kurdish siblings try to save the youngest of them who is seriously ill. So again, you could have this. Bahman Qobadi's the actor in Blackboards and he's the director of the film. So there's your double feature lineup. Far mm. and you? I have two possibilities. One of them is City of Mice mm. because you're following a teacher who's walking through the mountains with a group of kids and they've been displaced by the cat and the cat could be a stand in for war. Meanwhile, there's a second group that's also escaping, which is a group of adults in City of Mice. We don't see that second group, but it is pretty similar in that regard so i think that you could have a lot of interesting discussions around the two sides of it even though the movie wasn't as mature as i'd hoped it was especially the ending that being said that brings me to my second double feature lineup suggestion which would be to pair this with the dirties because the dirties is an example of a film where the ending hits you really hard and because it does, I think it, it can lead to some interesting conversations in the audience about, well, how could we have changed the ending of this other film to be more like that? Did it need to be? Was that was that way actually more reverent and more respectful of the actual of the actual massacre? 
So I, I think either one of those two would definitely work. You have to think like the, the your city of mice one is very good. It's almost oddly similar. And I was just thinking about it. Like if Samir was born in 1980, there's no way she didn't grow up with that film and living in oh, Iran. Yeah. yeah. So you have to wonder that yeah, how much even subconsciously this might have had an influence on her. Yeah. The, the, and also the, growing up with the Iran-Iraq war happening. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Can this be a modern Hollywood remake? What do you think, Kabe? I don't think so. I think it's too much of a staple of its time and place. But I would wonder, I often think of the West, I bring up the Wes Anderson thing, but when the kids said, we are mules, we never stop moving, it actually strangely gave me an image in that moment of Spirited Away. And I wondered mm. if, like, the, if like a Miyazaki mm. version of this would like literally go into Studio, studio Ghibli, mm. make it like anime, the kids who are mules, let them be mules. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A, a fantastical element of this. If I heard there was like an anime adaptation of this film, I would suddenly could I could totally see it. Mm. And I think it'd be very interesting in that way, in that spirited way. That's interesting. Of you think that'd be kind of cool? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I I don't trust Hollywood to adapt something like this. I think it's possible. Here here's how how I would pitch it. I would be like, hey, we're gonna do a modern take on this film. Mm-hmm. And we're going to put our money behind a Palestinian filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get them to talk about the struggles of their people. Yeah, they're going to do that any day now. <laughs> Another side of this is if you were to do a modern Iranian take on this, I would love to see someone explore similar struggles that the Baluchi people go through. Because I haven't, I'm sure they exist, but I haven't seen or heard of many Iranian films that show the Baluchi backdrop. And I wonder if part of that reason is because of uh, colorism, but I have no idea. Yeah. Because I know a lot of Baluchi stories and, and what happens in Baluchistan in general isn't talked about as much in Iran. There was that one actor um, who was Baluchi, who um, he passed away in the 80s. They, I think he was, in, uh, I think it's John Baluch, Baluchi. John oh Baluchi. my God. Uh, uh, I wonder now though Is John Belushi's last name Is he like an offshoot of that <laughs> Belushi. Final thoughts and grades For a grade I would give it a B Which I think is in the mid range of 75-ish mm-hmm. I think some parts of the film Are masterfully done I mm-hmm. think it's a very poetic film The documentary aspects of it are very interesting I and I don't think this is for lack of trying. I think that Samira made the film she wants to make. But for my personal preference and taste, I would have loved to have seen a little bit more character development because this isn't a documentary. Because she has at her disposal a prolific filmmaker like her father writing the script. Mm-hmm. Let's see some character development. You asked me why Kurosami might get a pass. It's because I think when he creates a landscape of people, like even small villagers with small roles have like, there's something to me that's very three-dimensional. They feel like they exist outside the boundaries of the film mm. i didn't see that so much in as much in this film mm. but i still very much enjoyed it and thought it perhaps one of has one of the best marriage ceremonies i've ever seen in film so <laughs> lots of charm lots of entertaining elements to it thought-provoking film solid b okay great i would agree with that i also gave it a b overall i thought it was a good movie that captured an important moment in history Some of the editing felt a little clunky to me. And as a result, I actually caught myself being a little aggravated at times. There was an unrealistic amount of repetition in the dialogue, likely from cutting together the same line from both angles. 
Sometimes shots would have pauses where you could tell the actor was still waiting to deliver their next line or they were waiting for the director to yell action. And I feel as though there was a way to hit the ending a lot harder than the director actually did. But even still, I think it worked out. So yeah, B. Which means that our average grade for this film is a B. Blackboards is a film against culture and for life. Culture here is personified by a band of jobless teachers, insurers of dead certainties, put out of work by brutal forces beyond their control. Life here parades itself in the form of a band of children trying to make a living, while a group of old men are in search of their death. Hovering between life and death, the two factual realities of the evidence, the teachers are hopelessly unemployed, unable to persuade either the young or the old to learn how to read and write. Samira, the high school dropout, is getting back at the system, very knowingly stating that in the midst of any hardships, human beings have the propensity to seek their place in the world, no matter what the challenges. Baran, thank you very much for all that you do. Kaveh, thank you very much for everything that you do. Oh, thank you. That's so nice of you. Uh, to our <laughs> listeners, thank you for listening in. We should mention that we're also on Instagram and some social medias. Or should we just cut this part out and not do this yet until we have more social medias? I guess we could. We're at episode 12. Follow us on Instagram. At Cinema Rex Podcast. We will typically post clips of upcoming episodes. So if you are interested in watching an episode before we review it, we will typically announce what the next film will be on our Instagram. Yes. So look out for it there. It'll give you an opportunity to watch it. Yes, and you can email us if you have any thoughts, comments, or suggestions for future movies at cinemarexpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much, Faran. And to our listeners, Beomidedida. Bye. Music for Cinema Rex was written and performed by Sohail Satinejad. <laughs>